Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Good morning. We are in 1 John chapter 4. As you're turning to 1 John chapter 4, I also want you to take a look at the screen and see if you remember this. The Matrix is a system, Neil. That system is our enemy. But when you're inside, you look around, what do you see? Businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters, the very minds of the people we are trying to save. But until we do, these people are still a part of that system, and that makes them our enemy. You have to understand, most of these people are not ready to be unplugged. And many of them are so inert, so hopelessly dependent on the system, that they will fight to protect it. Were you listening to me, Neo? Or were you looking at the woman in the red dress? I was... Look again. Who's it? Yeah. <laughs> I think most of us remember that film, Matrix, from 20 years ago. But I love the fact that he's introducing Neo to the concept of the system. That this system, everyone's a part of the system, everyone's influenced by the system, and most people are un, uh, they're unprepared to be unplugged from the system. And what if I told you that's you? That you're a part of the system, that the, is, the system has influenced you, even the church system has influenced you to be who you are today. Your parents have influenced you, your school has influenced you, your friends have influenced you, your college, your work associates, the media, the social media, everything has influenced you to be who you are today. And the myth is that you are your own individual. That's a myth. Uh, it's something that we would all love to believe, that we even sing songs about it. I did it my way, you know. But even that is a part of the system. So how would you become the authentic you? How would that happen? Sociologists call this socialization. You are being socialized from the time you're born to think what you think, to believe what you believe, to value what you value. Everything is socializing us. How do we unplug from the system? Wouldn't it be cool if the Bible talked about this? It does. <laughs> Thank you, Matrix. So we read in verse 4, a method for you to become an overcomer of the world system. You, dear friends or children, are from God and have overcome them. I'll tell you who them is in a moment. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. That, so that last line is telling us what John is wanting to get to. There is a way for you and I to, to actually recognize the difference between the, the, the system of truth and 
the system of falsehood. So he begins by asking us to realize that we are overcomers. What a great word that is, overcomers. There's a stronger word that I like that is equally uh, a synonym and a word that this term can be translated into, conqueror. Don't you think that's a stronger term? Overcomer just sounds like, uh, you know, I, I, mentally I did my best, I tried, and I, I got better, you know. And, but a conqueror is something that's just much more decisive, full of strength. And John is saying, that's who you are. He says, and have conquered them. You have conquered the system that's trying to influence you. Now, the them in the text, the them are the Antichrist. If you go back to the previous verses and then back to chapter two, you find out John has told us uh, that many Antichrists have gone out into the world. Small a, as a prelude to the capital A Antichrist who's coming one day. And an Antichrist is someone who is either in place of Christ or against Christ. And there are many things in this world that would be offered to you as either in place of Christ, that is, give your adoration, attention, and worship, and value to this thing or idea, or we're just Antichrist. And there, there are different expressions of that around the world, including in America. I remember when I first became a Christian, and I've told you the story. I come back from Christmas break. I'm in bio biology lab, and uh, we have a few minutes. And one of the older gentlemen at our biology lab table who was back from Vietnam, he said, well, what'd we all do over the, the Christmas break? And people began to share. And all I could think about was I became a Christian. It was the biggest thing in my life. And so when it came to me, I thought, I don't know if this is appropriate. Should I say it? Should I not say it? Well, obviously, in the world system, you should not say that. We are in public school. You, you don't talk about God. You don't talk about what you believe. You don't share anything like that. But I don't know. And I just said, I'd like to be honest. I'd like to be real. I'd like to be authentic, which I think is a value of God's system. And so I told it. I spilled the beans. I said, well, over the break, I became a Christian. <laughs> Bomb goes off. Dead silence. What do you say after that? Well, in either system, an appropriate thing to say would be, good for you, old chap. Right on. But my older friend says to me, well, Mark... I'm happy for you. I think some of us need a crutch in this world. <laughs> oh, ow. But that, that is the way a lot of people in the world system view what you believe. It's a crutch. Others believe it's a crock. Others believe it's a lie. So not everyone is happy about your Christianity. It is as if you're living in the matrix. So he says you can be an overcomer, a conqueror. 
And I love the, the verb here because it actually is a little bit stronger than that. It's in the tense that tells us it has happened and it has continuing effect into the present. It's a pluperfect tense that means it happened once and it has continuing effect to the now. How cool is that? So when did you become a conqueror? You became a conqueror the moment you gave your heart and life to Jesus Christ. The power of the forgiveness of the cross of Jesus Christ, the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ entered your being. You didn't know it. You were kind of just innocent and naive, but all heaven came into you and you became a conqueror. But here's the problem. We have an identity problem. You don't know it. And the devil doesn't want you to know it. He doesn't want you to know you're a conqueror, that you're an overcomer. He wants you to feel bad about yourself. He wants you to do the poor me thing. He wants you to do the, well, I'm just a little Marky Marky and I can't do much. There was a point in my life where I discovered if I play the I'm just a little poor me Marky Marky and lay down on the tarmac with the, in the fetal position, that maybe he will go away and leave me alone. Because some people do that. You know, if they're being mean to you and you cry, then they stop, right? Not the devil. He'll jump on your head. He'll beat your face in. He'll destroy your life. He's not done with you. So we've got to learn to buck up and take our stand and become who we are, which is an overcomer. Are you with me so far? You're tracking, good. So we come to this verse that I really want you to grab a hold of. Most of us already know it, and we love it, but most of us don't get it. He says, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Everybody else, or you know the old trance, the greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And we recite it, we quote it, and everything, greater is me, he that is in me than he that is in the world. But here's what happens. How great is the one that is in you? Oftentimes, we size up God based on how big we are. So we say, well, my trunk is about 18 inches long, and so God is big inside me, and so the devil must be this puny little guy because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And that's not what the translation says. If you read the whole thing, you realize he is not saying, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He's saying, greater is he that is in you than this great big evil that is in the world. The passage is not minimizing evil. It is maximizing greatness of God. Did you catch that? It is not minimizing evil. Evil is big and significant in the world system. Don't ever estimate evil that's here. It is massively real. It is deceptive. It's dangerous. There's no point in pretending that the devil is Mickey Mouse. 
The devil is huge. He's massive. He would destroy us all, except for the fact that greater is he <laughs> that is in us. So you realize who we have in us, oh my gosh, what are we talking about? The omnipotent God, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the efficacious work of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection, that is who is inside of you and the devil knows it. So it's not to minimize the devil. It's to maximize the salvation work of God in your life. And we know it. And that's what makes us a conqueror and overcomer. So these antichrists, they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listen to, to them. So we are all being socialized. We're all listening to something. The world system is always talking. And we, whether we know it or not, we are always being influenced. Human beings are one of the most poorest uh, beings on the planet. It's so ironic. We think we are not porous. We think we are self-made people, but we're absorbing things all the time. We don't even know who we are until someone informs us who we are. I mean, psychology has proved this. That an infant doesn't know who he or she is until the mom begins to uh, love on the child and say, this is who you are. You're a loved child. You're really loved. You're loved. And, and then one day the child wakes up and says, whoa, you're not me. I thought I was just attached to you. But we're actually separate, and you're informing me as to who I am. And it goes on from there. They're there, and we're wondering who we are. And the world wants to whisper into your ear who you are. And it says things like, you could be amazing if. If only you were more beautiful or handsome or six foot seven like Mark Foreman. <laughs> if you were six foot seven, you could be significant. But as it is, not so much. You could be significant if you had money. But as it is, not so much. <laughs> you could be amazing and significant if you were actually smart, had like Boku degrees behind your name. But as it is, <laughs> Not so much. You could be amazing if you had a significant address where anyone heard the address. Oh, whoa, I know where that is. But as for you, not so much. You could be significant if you had a good job. But as for you, not so much. So we find ourselves at these uh, parties that people are eating their hors d'oeuvres and they're, they're kind of doing the dog name tag thing and they say, so who are you? And, and they're telling stories, you know. And Brian Regan does a wonderful job of this so I don't need to belabor the point. But you could talk about your Lamborghini. Say, well, you know, I'm so glad you asked about me as I was driving my Lamborghini to this party. You know, I was just thinking of what a great time. And the other person says, you know, as I was jumping out of an airplane... <laughs> 
and uh, realizing this is the last skydive I can get in before I come to the party tonight. And you're wondering, what do you share? Well, I would encourage you just to hold back a little bit. As Brian says, and just let them run. Let the fish run with the line. And then you, after everyone has said something, you say, well, I'm really no one of significance. But I am here representing the Prince of Heaven. I happen to be the ambassador of God Almighty. And that will silence the party right there. (laughs) But my point is, is that significant? Should that be the only thing that counts, that makes you, I don't care where you drive, where you live, who you know, what you've done. I really don't care. What makes you significant is that you have the blood of the Trinity, the, the, the King of Kings flowing through your veins. And you are a prince and a princess in the kingdom of God. Now, if that's not true, then I'm on drugs. (laughs) If that's not true, then we just go back to listening to the world system and hope that it tells us something better tomorrow or living in insecurity or just getting by or becoming a conqueror. Because the devil will come to you. He will challenge you in many different ways. There's a great scene. I want to jump ahead to the scene of uh, John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, where that knight is facing off with the dragon. Can we do that up there? I'm uh, throwing you off a little bit, but I know you're ambidextrous, so you can do all things. So I think this is a great scene because I believe every Christian has to come to this point. You can pretend the devil doesn't exist, or you can come to a point where you realize, okay, There is a personal evil that is against me, and I have to decide, will I take my stand and be an overcomer? It's a knee-knocking moment where you have to decide, and I don't think you get out of it. I think every Christian has to decide. Are you going to keep cowering and keep listening to the whispers of the world or become who God has called you to be? And if you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you know there's a dialogue that goes on with uh, Christian and Apollyon. And these are the things that Apollyon, which means destroyer, says to Christian. He, first of all, tries to make him sin, promising that it will make him more significant, better, he'll feel better, he'll be more wonderful if he goes ahead and sins. Have we all had that attack? It's what temptation is all about. It's his first ploy with you. What are you going to do? You can either pretend it like it's a gnat or a fly buzzing your head, or you can take your stand and say, get out of here. Uh, for it is written, as Jesus does in response with the word of God. Oh, secondly, he points out the hypocrisy of the people in the church. Second ploy of the devil. How many times does the world do that? 
church is full of a bunch of hypocrites. And the people who say that are looking for an excuse to not go to church. Do you catch the, the hand is quicker than the eye? That if I can say that they're all hypocrites, it's kind of a Yoda move, then you say, oh, yeah, that's right. So I should not want God at all. Doesn't even make any sense or logic. It would seem to make more logic to say, we're all in a stage of getting good, better, and best, and we all have got a little bit of hypocrisy in us somewhere, but we want to get better, so we are going to church. <laughs> the third ploy of the devil in Pilgrim's Progress is to point out the trials and hardships if you follow Jesus. Some of you are already thinking about that this morning. Whoa, I just thought I'd accept Jesus, raise my hand, is just all going to be wonderful and eat cotton head candy all the way to heaven. And this sounds hard. It sounds hard to follow Jesus. And so he presents that to you like it's going to be arduous. Like you, you're going to have to obey. You're going to have to go to church. You're going to have to give in the offering. Oh, this sounds so hard. And so we become intimidated. Number three, or four, he points out Christians' own failings. You call yourself a Christian? How many have had that one? It's the little whispering in your, look at you. You call yourself, you're already judging Mark for talking too long. Look at that. <laughs> he, I wish he'd just stay still on the stage. He's just walking around too much. I don't like the big screen. You know, why'd they get the big screen? Whatever's going on in your mind, look at you. And then he follows it up with guilt. Two tricks. Get you to sin, and then when you do sin, blames you for it and say, look at yourself. You call yourself a Christian. And then finally, he points out your motives. So you finally do something kind and nice. But you barely felt like it. And he's there to tell you, look at you. You, you helped them out, but you really didn't want to. You really wanted to watch the Padre game. But then you turned off the TV just, to, you really didn't want to turn off the TV. You didn't really want to help them or listen. So he's, he's, he's just that guy. He's, he can be on your shoulder, just whispering. Now, thank God he's not always there. Most of the time, he's not there. Thank God. When Satan came to challenge Jesus, he came very strongly with three temptations, and then the text says that he left Jesus to wait for a more opportune time. And the opportune times are when you're discouraged when you're tired, when something bad has happened to you, those are the weak moments that, you know, he's not here right now, you know, because you're feeling pretty strong and, and big, and there's a lot of Holy Spirit here. But he's waiting for that time where you're weak, a more opportune time. But what I love in the text of uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is Christian, listen, he takes his stand. And that has to be a knee-knocking moment where this little guy hasn't shrunk the devil. 
because the devil's big, he's believing by faith that the God inside him is bigger, way bigger than that, so he takes his stand. It's, he's all in. Either this is going to work or it's not. And in the story, he speaks mostly about the king and very little about himself. Hello? Yeah, remember that. Two things. When the enemy comes to you with the whisperings, there's two things to keep between you and the devil. Jesus and the word of God. Don't put them behind you and say, I'm going to handle this. You keep Jesus in front of you. Whatever he says, you say, yeah, but Jesus. Yeah, but Jesus. Yeah, but Jesus. And then you just follow it with the word of God, as Jesus does. The devil cannot get to you when you keep Jesus and the word of God in front of you. And then finally, what I love about Christian, when the devil begins to enumerate all of his sins, you know what Christian says? You betcha. And it's far worse than you've even said. When the devil comes to remind you of what a sinner you are, there is no point in saying, I am not. I'm amazing. Why? why? You know you're a sinner. And he knows far more of your sin than you know. So Christian says, I, you are so right, and I'm far worse than you have even said. But my Jesus and the word of God says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, and I'm whoever, <laughs> believes would not perish but have eternal life. And folks, I'm telling you, when you finally decide to take your stand and quit treating these things like a little bug flying around your head, something begins to happen and you begin to wear the boots of a conqueror. Not proud, not talking about it to other people, but simply becoming who God has called you to be. Let's go back and look at the lore for a second, just to remind you how he's going to come to you. He's never going to come saying, hello, my name is the devil. Just wanted to clear that up. He's going to come to you, as the Bible says, as an angel of light. So fishermen call that a lure. There is a fly lure. Those of you that are fly fishermen, you'll already know that I'm weighing over my head on this. So bear with me for a moment. But I've only fly fished twice in my life, but I could try to make myself look significant by telling you I fished, I fly fished for six hours on the Snake River. And you guys would say, oh my gosh. And I would say to you, and I caught nothing. <laughs> but here's a fly, and as you can see, it's dry enough to float on the water. You've got to keep throwing it out to keep it dry, but also have it behave as if it's a true fly, because the fish down below are used to catching flies, not salmon eggs. And uh, so it's out there, but notice two things. The hook. Did you see that at first? Oh, yeah. And did you see the line? Those two things, if the fish 
could know are telling him it's a trick. Fishermen are tricksters. They're illusionists. And so is the devil. He wants to make you think that this is the thing. This is the one time if you did, wouldn't you? It's even to the point of, I, I've had times where I want to say something in a conversation and I'll feel this gentle nudge from the Spirit say, don't say that. And part of me said, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. Just being real, being authentic. And the Spirit says, come on, don't say it. I'm going to say it. <laughs> and I go for the bait. It's not always some great thing like the God saying, don't rob the bank. And you're saying, well, I didn't know it was a bank. You know. So the devil wants to trap you into sin. You are free now as an overcomer to not sin, but then if you do sin, he's not done with you. He's going to pile on you like a fumble on a football field to make sure that you feel shame and guilt and shame and guilt and you are the scum of the world unworthy of following Jesus Christ. So what do we do? Whether under the pile or before the temptation, decide to stand. Because the Bible says, I am an overcomer, a conqueror. Are you with me? So now we move to another part of the sermon, which is really the most important part. Because this is really not about evil and overcoming. It's really about what do we do with the bulk of our time, which is love. If you looked with me to verse 7, Dear friends, let us love one another. That's what he's getting to. That is the offense. It's great to send the defense onto the football field, become an overcomer. But once we've done that, let's get the offense back on the field. And the offense is love. It is the most powerful thing you can ever do is love. Love is not only who God is, but love is is speaking all the time. Love is a message. People see it. They taste it. They, they realize you are giving them good, good news through your behavior. John here in the text, he piles up the word love. And as you probably guessed, the Greek word here is agape. And I've given you in the text and maybe even on the screen, if we can see it, uh, where the word is clearly there. So he says, dear friends, and in the literal, it's not friends, it's agape toy. Isn't that fun? Which re really should be translated beloved. But the NIV makes the decision because we don't call anyone beloved to not use the word. And so they translate it as dear friends. And I'm thinking, how lame is that? That is not what the text says. It's not just simply dear friends. It's my beloved, using the word agape. Then he goes on to say, let us therefore now love agape men for 
Love, agape, comes out of God. So he piles on the word so you would get what the big idea is. It's love. You are called to love. You are a love agent. You are a person, contrary to the world's system, which is all about me, you are a part of a new system which is all about giving yourself away in love to other people. And it's sacrificial love. In this passage where it says love comes from God, the literal is it comes out of God. It exudes out of God. And then we love because we have been born again out of God and because we're in relationship with God, we know now how to love because we have experienced his love the way he loves us. Whoever does not love does not know God. Because, and then the great phrase that we love, the clause, God is agape. By the way, it's not the reverse. Love is God. Because if you reverse it, you're going to fill in what you think love is. And if you make love a God, C.S. Lewis is right when he says it becomes a demon. If you make love God, it begins to rule over you, control you. You make decisions. Well, I've got I've to control my children even though they're 89. They're still mine, and I've got to control them because love is God. No, 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 no. You should have let them go a long time ago because love is not God. God is love. Or I need to have this love. I need to have this girl or this guy. I just can't be happy unless I have him. And we sing songs about that on the radio. You know, if I ever lose you, I'm going to die because I love you and I just want to suck the living life out of you because (laughs) when I'm around you, you make me feel so good and I love me so much. I love to love you. And those kind of songs... That is a song about love becoming God rather than God is love. So love, our perception of affection and love doesn't rule over us. God defines love, and now we have to go on to find out what is the definition of love. By the way, because God is love, that is the definition of how we love. That is the definition of who you are. So anyone born of God loves, right? Not perfectly, but we're getting better, right? So if someone came to San Diego, they say they came to San Diego. As you run into people all the time, say, oh, I've been to San Diego. And I say, what, are you, what did you love? Uh, can't remember. And I said, well, do do you remember uh, the zoo? And they said, oh, I didn't know they had a zoo. (laughs) I said, how about the Coronado Bridge, Hotel Dell? Bridge over what? I mean, the harbor? No, didn't know it had a harbor. So where did you land? San Diego. Uh, Gas lamp district? What's the gas lamp district? Uh, How about Little Italy? Did you go up and see the sea lions, La Jolla? La Jolla, what, you know, I didn't know. How about the beaches? Did you see any of the beaches with crawling with surfers everywhere? There's beaches? 
How about the weather? Didn't notice. My friend, you didn't go to San Diego. If you had been to San Diego, one of those things would have happened. In the same way, if you have met God, love begins to happen. That's a question. Have you met the author or have you only read the book? The book, the Bible, points to the author, and the author is love. So finally, we're coming down to the last uh, two innings of the game. What is love? Is there a succinct definition of love? I'm glad you asked. There is. Verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. We get a definition. This is love. Not that we love God. That's not the definition. But that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, agape toy, beloved, since God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. No one has seen God, but guess what? They get to see our love. And when they see our love, it goes full circle, and they get to see the nature of God because God lives in us, and love is made complete. Wow. Just a few thoughts there before I close. One is, at the beginning, he says, this is how God showed and that has the emphasis of radically displayed how did god radi- if he's love how did he radically display his love and he tells us through jesus christ the incarnation the atonement on the cross for your sins and we can't get rid of it we can't get it out of our minds the cross whether it's a crucifix with Jesus on it or a crucifix without Jesus on it and just the cross, every time you see the symbol, you're reminded that's love. God did it. I can't forget it. It's historically happened. Now for you all-star students, listen carefully. I'll tell you something that most people don't have the patience to learn. Are you, are you willing? it just take three minutes. Some people, when they come to Jesus, they're stumbled by the phrase that we have in in this verse here, God sent his only begotten son. And so as a new Christian, we see the word begotten and we think, oh, then God the Father must have given birth to Jesus because of the word begotten. So there must have been a time when Jesus didn't exist way back before creation that the father gave birth to because he says only begotten. Let me set you free. Can I? That's not what begotten means. That's not what the word means. The word is monogene, which means of the same type. It is not, ref- it is not ganao, which means to give birth. It is gene, which means of the same substance, of the same type. His only unique a son who is of the same substance that he is. God. <laughs> so contrary to an early heresy by Arius 
that the Nicene Creed cleared up, there wasn't a point that God gave birth to Jesus forever and ever and ever. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were loving each other. Pure love, and they decided to share the love, <laughs> just to spread the love. And we, we learned about it through Jesus. Got it? Now you're an expert in church history and church doctrine. So he brings us to a close and says that we bring this full circle when we now love somebody else. Whoa. So plain, so simple. So here's an exercise for you. Think of someone, all the people in your life, uh, not on your Facebook page, please, that's too long. Just the people in your life that, that you encounter that you could show love to. There's dozens. Just go through the Rolodex. Dozens. Okay. Now, take it one step further and think of the person that you find difficult to be with. Oh, yeah. There they are. <laughs> Isn't it funny how they just, boom, there they are again. Oh, yeah. They've just been difficult in your life. No matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter, it's just there they are. And now, what if God is calling you to love them? Oh, no, 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 no. This cannot be the gospel. God calls me to love people I like. But we already studied that the question of how does that make you any different than an unbeliever? Everybody loves someone who loves them. When God so loved the world, he loved the, the system of the world, not what it was made of, but the people in it. And it wasn't pretty. And so he came, and the system killed him. And he rose again. Now he says, tag, you're it. So, okay, go back to that person again and say, okay, God, give me grace to love them with your love. Now, one step further, keep loving them. Don't stop. But I already loved them. I did it. Boy, was that hard. And they didn't even thank me. I mean, I, I was nice, and they were just like, whatever. And then, and then, you know, no, keep loving them again. And then love them again. And then love them again. Because that's how God has loved you. You haven't thanked him every time. You haven't even noticed every, but he keeps loving you. You know who I learned that from? I learned it from my wife, who keeps loving me and kept loving my kids when they were young and kept getting up night after night and feeding them and changing them and feeding them and changing them. She, there was never a point she could say, I'm done. <laughs> She just kept at it and at it and at it and at it. And that's how God loves you. It's in your blood. It's in your veins now. Part of overcoming is now being that incredible lover. Now, here's the lie that we believe in the world system. That once we get to that point, 
There, did it, done. So parents say things like, boy, these sleepless nights, feedings, you know, every minute, every one hour and 59 minutes, you know, it's just like, I'm just so sleep deprived and I'm just dying. And they begin to say, it'll be so nice when they sleep through the night. And then they realize that didn't solve the problem because now they're about crawling and we say, it'll be so nice when they can go from crawling to walking. It'll be so nice when they can talk and tell me what they're thinking. It'll be so nice when they finally can, can go to school and it will just it'll be easy peasy. It'll be so nice once they can drive. It'll be so nice once they meet a significant other and I'll have to stop loving them. And now you have a significant other that you didn't choose came into your life. It'll be so nice once they... We love and we keep loving Sacrificial love is easy one time. Oh, there's someone drowning. Quick, dive into the water, save them. Oh, they're drowning again today. <laughs> oh, they're, they're in the water again. Sacrificial love keeps loving. And God has now called us. We covered the defense. You are a conqueror because of Jesus Christ. The word of God and Jesus between you and the devil. But most of the time, you're on the field, it's offense. And you're the one, the ambassador, who represents the love of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us, your faithfulness, your truth. Thank you for the map you've given us to know how to steer through life. And God, we pray that you'd take all of these bits and pieces from your word and you'd take them from our minds to our hearts and cause them to stick. God, that we would come out of identity crisis and believe that we are conquerors through Jesus Christ and begin to live like kings and queens. That God, you would have your way in our lives, not only protecting us, but making us agents of your love. Sacrificial love in the tough times with the tough people. Thank you, God, for never failing to love us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.